planet for a purpose. Amen. Amen. As born again believers, we have a mission. We have been called to do a job. And if that job is going to be done in the way that God wants it to be done, we need to know something about who we are and where we're going. For the last several Sundays, I think it's been six, I've been sharing with you some things that I believe ought to be at the core of who we are, our core values. The first week, which was clear back in February at some point, we talked about truth and grace. Truth and grace, because Jesus gave me grace. I choose to be a person of grace. And in grace, I'm going to ask you to hit the next slide. And the next one. Thank you. Truth and grace. We are recipients of grace. You are not saved by anything that you did. Doesn't matter how good you've been, you still need God's grace. And because I need God's grace and receive God's grace, we need to be people who give grace to people. Secondly, we talked about intimacy with God. We talked about the fact that God has a deep desire to be in intimate relationship with you. A deep desire to be in... That's why Jesus came. Because God wanted to be in relationship to restore what was lost when Adam chose to follow Eve and her sin. We closed out with the picture of Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock if anyone open I will come in and sup with him. We talked about extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. In the light of the grace I've received, I express my thanksgiving and my love to Jesus by giving him my best in the way I live, the best in the way I give, and the best in the way I serve. Because I have been blessed, I live as a grateful person giving him honor and glory and praise each and every day that I'm alive with every breath that I have. We talked about the glory of God. Life's purpose is to glorify God. You and I are here to glorify God. By the things that we say that people might glorify the Father who is in heaven, Glorify God. We talked about biblical authority. We are called to make God's word the final authority in every area of our lives. Biblical authority. How do I decide what's right and wrong? What the Bible says. If it's contrary to what you see or hear someplace else, What do we choose? What the Bible says. It is so important in this day and age in which we live, in which now we live in a secular, uh, secularized culture that does not believe in the Scripture. They do not believe that it's the Word of God. So they are propagating all kinds of philosophies that are contrary to the Word of God. But we're going to be a people, people of grace, But we're going to be people of truth, too. Because it's the truth that will set you free. 
And Jesus is truth. The word is truth. Last week we talked about we need to have a heart for the lost. A heart for the lost. Jesus gave us a great commission. Go preach the gospel and make disciples of all ethnic groups, of all nations, of all people groups, of all languages. Go and do what Brenton talked about. Go tell people about Jesus, whether it be in your neighborhood or Tanzania, wherever you go, have a heart for the lost, a heart that's looking like Jesus looked for, opportunities to share with somebody who's ready to hear the good news that Jesus loves them. Because we've been given, and if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ ambassadors, Paul said, given the ministry of reconciliation. We are the go-between, between a seeker and the Father. And he uses us to share the good news with them. Today we're going to talk about a core value that we talked about several times when we were studying 1 John at the latter part of 2022 and into the first month of, of 2023. We're going to talk about a love for people. A love for people. John 13, 34, and 35 said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Two observations. We are to love others as he, that's Jesus, loves us. We are to love others as he loves us. He said, just as I have loved you. He gave us the parameters of love. He makes it crystal clear what he expects of us. To love each other in the same way that Jesus loves us. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? Secondly, our love for each other indicates our love for God. Our love for each other indicates our love for God. More than once in our study of 1 John, we saw that John said, the same writer who wrote this gospel, as he wrote that letter to the churches in Asia Minor, that people will know how much you really love God by how much you love each other. And he says, if you say you love God and don't love each other, then you're a liar. I didn't say it. John did. Bible said it, okay? He said, if you... How can you say you love somebody you can't see if you can't love the person right in front of you? He said, this, this is how we know that we love God is because we love each other. Many people are familiar with the story that Jesus told one day in his teaching when a lawyer approached him, endeavoring to trap him. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered his question with a question. What, does, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, with great confidence, answered, Luke 10, 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied by telling one of the most famous stories in the scripture. And then he asked the lawyer another question. He started with his story and he said, there was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, he was accosted by some thieves. They beat him up, robbed him, left him lying in the ditch. A priest happened to walk by and walked, saw him laying there and walked around him. Then a Levite came by and he too saw the man laying there wounded, but he walked by him. Jesus said, then the Samaritan came by he saw the man wounded, and he stopped, and he bandaged up his wounds. He just happened to have a first aid kit. It probably means he ripped part of his robe, bandaged up his wounds, put him on his beast of burden, took him to the inn, said to the innkeeper, I'll pay for this guy's stay until he gets better, and if, if it doesn't cover it, next time I come by, I'll pay the, the, the rest of it. Jesus looked at the lawyer and said, Now, which of these three was a neighbor? And of course, the lawyer can say nothing but the one who stopped and helped. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. The story that Jesus told validated the Greek word used for neighbor. The Greek word is plesion which means close by. Jesus was saying, you need to love whoever it is that's near to you. Whoever it is that's come close to you. And I say close, I'm not saying you're good buddy. Samaritans and Jews were not good buddies. They did not have time for each other. But because that man was in need, he stopped and held him. Those that the Lord brings close to you, wherever you might be, love them like Jesus loved you. A new commandment I give you, he said. You love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. I want to talk about the context of John chapter 13 for a moment. This is where he gives this new commandment. John 13 is the beginning of Jesus' last evening with his disciples, the twelve, before he is crucified on the next day. In Holy Week, which is coming up a week from now, this is called Monday, Thursday. This is the night of the Last Supper, and this, John 13, is where they are gathered together in that borrowed upper room. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 are some of the most intimate um, interactions between Jesus and his 12 chosen men he called to be the apostles. They're eating the Passover meal together as the chapter begins. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus rose from the dinner, took off his outer garments, grabbed a towel, and tied it around his waist. You see that, as I said a moment ago, the dinner was taking place in a borrowed room. 
and there was really no designated host, no host dinner, if you please. There was not a Gentile servant person at the door to greet people, which would be the normal custom if you were hosting at your house, you would have either your servant or your youngest child, and they would meet the guest who have walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem. You would meet their guest and they would take off their sandals and they would wash their feet, put oil on their face and, and refresh them from walking through the dust. But at this particular meal, there was no servant. It's just Jesus and the twelve. Because that's a task that was assigned to somebody at the bottom of the totem poles, so to speak, there wasn't anybody who volunteered. In fact, if you read Luke's gospel and his account of this night, you know what one of the main, major conversations between the twelve was when they were excluding Jesus from the conversation there as they reclined around that table. You know, they laid down on their side, the table was low, and they'd lay on their left side and eat with the right hand, and their feet, their dirty feet would be extended behind their body, and they hoped nobody could see their dirty feet. Because there was not a one of them who wanted to take the posture of being the lowest. They were arguing about which one of us is the greatest. It's in that context that Jesus stood up took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around, put water in the basin, and then stooped down and walked around and began to wash the feet of those flabbergasted 12 men. You remember when he gets to Peter? Peter says, no, Peter has a awakening moment. There's no way you're going to wash my feet. In other words, he understood, Jesus, I should be washing your feet. But Jesus said to him, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter, so much like us, takes the pendulum clear to the other side and said, then wash all of me. Wash my hands, wash my face, give me a bath. Jesus said, that's not necessary. What I want you to know is just, I just want to wash your feet. It's in that context, after he has washed their feet, put his clothes back on and sits down or lays down again, reclines at the table. This is the new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. And I want you to see back at verse 3, John 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. There's a translation saying, knowing that Jesus had given him all authority over everything. And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. That's when he stood up and took off his... He knows that when Sunday comes... He will be exalted to the highest place in existence, to the right hand of the Father. 
He takes off his outer garment, washes their feet. Let me share three things from that, that Jesus demonstrated. Number one, he had nothing to prove. He had nothing to prove by doing that act of service. It wasn't a, he wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. Number two, he had nothing to lose. He had nothing to lose. Father had already given him everything. And he had nothing to hide. The one who is going to be exalted above every other name, Lord himself and became a servant, the lowest of servants, as he washes the feet. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He knew what his mission in life was. That's why it is so important that you and I know who we are in Jesus Christ. We know who we're, where we're going, and we know what our mission is. It delivers us from the spirit of competition. It delivers us from the evil spirit of insecurity. Because my security is not based on what you think about me. My security is based upon what he thinks about me and who I am in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a whole other sermon, but I couldn't go by it. Because Jesus knew who he was, where he was going, and what his mission was, have you thought about the things that he was able to endure in the next 24 hours from this moment? He was able to endure the betrayal of a friend and the abandonment of all of them. He was able to comfort his disciples when he was the one who should have been comforted. He was able to handle the denial of Peter. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Peter swears, I never knew you. He was able to turn the other cheek when the mockery of a trial began. And they literally began to smite him in the cheek and to pluck his beard. He was able to turn everything over to the Father and say, not my will, but yours. He was willing to die, all because of his incredible love for people. Stories told about the Olympics, the Special Olympics. Those are the Olympics for those who are mentally or physically challenged. This particular race was the 100-yard dash. I think it's called the 100 meters now. But in that day was the 100-yard dash. They lined up at the starting line. They got set. The gun went off, and away they ran. And halfway down the track, one of them fell to the track. In this particular race, every other contestant in that 100-yard dash stopped the running. They walked back, picked up the young man who'd fallen, and together, they crossed the finish line. Mentally challenged. Care for each other. Love each other. Lift up the hands that hang down. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. I want to look at another passage of Scripture, one written by the Apostle Paul that has to do with loving like Christ loves. I want to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians, and not the 13th chapter, but the 9th chapter. I suggest that sometime today you open your Bibles and and read chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And while you're there, just go all the way to chapter 13. But because it's all the one great context, one letter. But it's a very interesting part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Chapter 8 is all about whether or not we should eat meat that was offered to idols or not. It was a major issue for the church at Corinth. Some people, including Paul, felt that since an idol has no real existence, the food cannot really be contaminated by any way by a God that does not exist. Go ahead and barbecue it and enjoy it. There were others who were absolutely convinced that this meat was polluted because it had been offered to a pagan God and in pagan worship. No matter what the meat thermometer says, that meat is tainted, not edible, not to be eaten. Some would say, you'll go to hell if you eat that meat. As Paul writes concerning the issues, he lets it be known there's something that's more important than my freedom or my lack thereof to eat meat that came from the wrong market. In that same context, he also addresses the issue that was going on in Corinth as to whether or not a preacher of the gospel should be paid for preaching or teaching the gospel. In Corinth, he didn't take any money from them because of that controversy. He made tents and worked as bivocational. But he talks about how that's really not God's plan. Reading in verses 3 through 5, should read the whole chapter, but for time's sake, we're not going to. Verse 3 said this, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Skipping down to verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. To love as Jesus loved means that there are times I must abandon my rights. That's what Paul's saying here. We have not made use of this right. We hear a great deal about rights these days. Everyone, including toddlers, know they have rights. I have been threatened by a four-year-old in this building 
You touch me, I will sue you. Where did they learn that? If you deprive me of my rights, I'm going to sue you. I'll take you to court. Marriages disintegrate because each spouse insists on their rights. We could go on and on where that's taking place in our culture. But Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, yes, I have my rights, things that are fair and just, and I have earned these rights. But listen, if it will get someone into the kingdom of God, I will gladly lay down my rights. There are things that are more important than my rights. Which leads us to number two, we must accept responsibility. We must accept responsibility. As you read on in the ninth chapter, Paul lets us know that he not only understood we need to lay down our rights, but he also understood he was responsible for reaching out to people. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. I'm entrusted. He said, God has given me a job, a stewardship. I'm responsible to use what he has given me for the purpose that he gave it to me for. That's what stewardship is all about. Paul understood he was called to share the good news, the gospel, with people. Last Sunday, we made the observation that each and every one of us as born-again believers are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in our circle influence. We have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. I referred to it a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul shows us that love is not only laying down our rights, it is picking up our responsibility. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus modeled. Taking your mind back to John 13 in the Last Supper, he rose from the table, wrapped a towel, filled a basin, stooped to wash the feet of 12 men. Basin of water. Less than 12 hours later, there was another basin of water that enters this narrative of the gospel story. But this time, a whole different context. Pilate stands there. The governor of Judea, the Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate because they have no authority for capital punishment. They say this man needs to be executed. Pilate said, I have interrogated him. I find no fault in this man. What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. He said, bring me a basin of water. And you remember what he said? As he washed his hands. I find no fault in him. I see no reason to incarcerate him or execute him. I want you to see that I'm absolving myself from any responsibility for what happens. As he washed his hands. And then turns him over to be crucified. Jesus did just the opposite because of his love for people. He went beyond the call of rank and he took upon himself the responsibility of being servant. 
as he washed the disciples' feet. Paul did that as he traveled from place to place. Throughout Asia Minor, into Greece. He laid aside his rank as an apostle. Called and appointed by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he became a servant wherever he went. He gave up his rights, picked up his responsibility. Love does not become genuine until those two things happen. Giving up our rights and picking up your responsibility. Giving up our rights, picking up your responsibility. There's a price to be paid in love and in fellowship and friendship. Think about marriage. Wives, submit yourself unto your husband as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Giving up your rights, taking up your responsibility. We must accept the role of a servant. Verse 19 said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul willingly gave himself. For him, the highest authority was no longer the law. It was love. It was the love of God that constrained him. And he willingly submitted to it. And he willingly learned how to love people. And I say he learned how to love people because when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he loved the law more than he loved people. That's why he was incarcerating and even party to executing Christians. But something happened when he met Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ loved him. He understood now he has a responsibility. Number four, Paul teaches us we must adjust ourselves to meet the needs of people. We must adjust ourselves. I say ourselves, the things that we hold dear, the things that we believe, that are just our personal preferences and not a matter of dogma or theology that we cannot deviate on. The acid test of servanthood, the acid test of love is, are we willing to adjust, to make changes in ourselves so that we can reach and love and meet the need of others? Verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as an outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So what he's saying here is, if I'm going into a city and they don't eat meat, I don't eat meat. I go to another city and this congregation, they have barbecues on an ongoing basis. He said, I have barbecues with them. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some always walking under the law of Christ 
we read that back. I walk under the law of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Paul is saying as a Christian, given the responsibility to share the gospel, I'm going to do whatever it takes short of changing the truth to reach people for Jesus. I'll change my methods to match with whom I am in order to reach as many as I can for Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He left heaven, laid down his deity to live as a man. You talk about a severe adjustment. The one who spoke it all into existence became a baby, confined to a human body, and everything that goes along with that. Here's a statement I love. It's, I don't know if it has anything to do with the mess, the, but it, I love it. The Son of God became a son of men, became a son of men, so that we who are the sons of men may become the sons of God. Son of God became a son of men so that we who are the sons of men may become the sons of God. To as many as received him, he gave the right, the power, the authority to be called the sons of God. And that's what we are. Amen? Sometimes I'm amazed, even appalled, how immature we can be as Christians. I'm willing to bend, adjust. I'm willing to give up and lay down things that give us warm and fuzzy feelings. I'm willing to change our priorities and give up our lives to reach the lost people with the love of Jesus. Number five, Paul said we anticipate rewards. We anticipate rewards. Now, I realize that there are those who believe that as Christians, rewards should not be in our minds. We don't serve Christ for rewards. And while I appreciate the heart of what those folks are saying, the truth is we will be rewarded according to our life and the fruit that is produced. So Paul said this in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners race, but only one receives the price? So run that you may obtain it. Run that you may obtain it. Run to be first. Run to win. Give it all you got. Don't be coasting. Don't take it half-heartedly. Run to win the prize. The rewards. Don't be intimidated by it. It's not intended to be intimidated. It's intended to be a promise. It's intended to be a promise. Jesus said there'd be rewards. I took this out of the fridge just before the service, so it's still a little bit cold. Anybody getting thirsty looking at it? Anybody want to drink? No one? Hmm. You think it's a trap, don't you? It's not a trap. 
But if I gave you this water today, hand you that water as a servant of Christ, do you know what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and Matthew 25 and Mark 9? He's keeping track of this bottle of water. And if I give this to you to quench your thirst, it's marked down in heaven. Scripture tells me I can't give away water to quench somebody's thirst without being noted in heaven. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 25, if I gave it to any one of you to quench your thirst, it says, if I gave it to Jesus himself. Inasmuch as you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. In the eyes of God, we do something loving for someone else, no matter how insignificant it may seem to us. He recognizes it, keeps track of it, and the Scripture says when we stand before Him, we will be rewarded accordingly. Father's been watching you. I know that some of you got a great list going of rewards. As you've hugged people, you've given people a word of encouragement. The reason I, I stop here and dwell on that is because sometimes we feel like if I'm not the person up in front, I'm not really not doing it, I'm not doing anything for the kingdom. But you know what? Sometimes just a card or a hug or phone call is more powerful than any sermon I can preach. Because somebody has experienced real love. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ flowing through you. Have you ever tried to imagine what heaven's going to be like? We sing the song, I can only imagine what it will be like. All the acts of love and kindness that seem so small and trivial. In my imagination, I believe that they'll be played across the big screen of heaven for all to see. I take part of that from Jesus in the temple and he watched the little lady give her last, King James calls it a mite, one preacher said, I might buy something and it might not. <laughs> and Jesus said, she gave more than anyone else here today because she gave all she had. Those kinds of things will be across the screen of heaven. I have a sentence in your notes today that I suggest you can use as an icebreaker the next time you're with a group of people and the conversation becomes um, anything but uplifting just throw this question out this statement tell us about a time when you experienced the power of love and then invite people to talk tell us about a time you experienced the power of love
I want to share a couple of stories that I, I have read of how people answered that question. A woman said, when I was a little girl, seven, eight, or nine years old, whatever it was, my parents were a mess. My dad took off, left the family. My mother drank most of the time and ran around with men. She said, I was alone in the house most of the time. I would come home from school. I'd sit on the front stoop and I would just cry because I wanted to have some parents around. She said, I'd look over at the next door neighbors and there was a father to some kids in that family. And the father every once in a while would come out and he would mow the lawn. And the gal said, I can remember just wishing that I could walk next to the dad next door while he's mowing the lawn because then I'd feel like I had a father and I wasn't alone in this world. One day, the father from next door came over to this little girl and said, boy, you seem really lonely. I'm mowing the lawn. Would you like walk next to me? She said, I really would. So she put her hands on the handle and he had his hands there and they mowed the lawn together. He said, anytime I mow the lawn, you're welcome to walk with me. She said, I don't think I would have made it in this life unless that man had done what he did. He was the first adult that conferred any value that showed any interest in me. In fact, she said, some days I would come home from school and look at his lawn and hope it was tall enough for him to go out and mow it. Powerful. Powerful. Question. Has your capacity to love kept pace with the other gains you've made in your life? Has your capacity to love kept pace with the other gains you've made in your life? I read a story about a man who had issues with insecurities and loving people and he knew what God felt about the supremacy of love, so he decided on his own to move into a home for mentally and physically challenged young people so his heart for loving could be stretched. His name was Henry Nguyen. Died in 1996. He wrote about 39 books. Some of us good, some of us not so good, but... but this story that is in one of his books. He was a Jesuit priest, um, and he moved into this home, and he's living with a, what we would call a group home today. Living in that arrangement really did start to increase his ability to stretch his love, and then he, he added something to it. He was invited to speak in numerous places, he was a professor at Harvard, professor at Yale, and, and uh, he would go out to speak somewhere. He would take one of the people from the home and, uh, so that they would stay, he would stay enrolled in the school of love. 
In one of his books, he wrote of a time when he took a young man with him to a speaking engagement, and he learned a little bit about love. He was going to give a talk in Washington, D.C. As he was making some opening remarks, here's what happened. He said, I opened by saying that I had not come to the speaking engagement alone, but was very happy that a guy named Bill had come with me. He was from that home, he said. I took out my handwritten text, and I began to talk. At that moment, I saw that Bill had left his seat in the auditorium, and he walked right up to the podium and planted himself behind me. It was clear that he had a much more concrete idea about the meaning of doing it together than I did. Each time I finished reading a page of my talk, he took the page away and put it down on a table close by. I started to feel at ease with this and started to feel Bill's presence as support. But Bill had even more in mind. When I began to speak about the temptation to turn stones into bread as a temptation to be relevant, he interrupted me and said loudly enough for everyone in the room to hear, I've heard that before. He had indeed. And he just wanted the, everyone in the room to know that he'd heard it before and that he knew him quite well and familiar with his ideas. For me, it was like a gentle, loving reminder that my thoughts were not as new as I wanted my audience to believe. Bill's intervention created a new atmosphere in the ballroom. Bill had taken away the seriousness of the occasion and brought to it a kind of a homespun normality. As I continued my presentation, I felt more and more that we were indeed doing it together, and it felt good. When I came to the second part of reading my message and was reading the words, the question most asked by the handicapped people with whom I lived was, are you going to be home tonight? Bill interrupted me again. That's right. That's what John Smeltzer always asked. And again, there was something disarming about his remark. Bill knew John Smeltzer very well after living with him in that home for many years. And he simply wanted people to know about his friend. It was as if he drew the audience toward us, inviting them into the intimacy of our common life. After I'd finished my talk, people had shown their appreciation. Bill said to me, Henry, can I say something now? My first reaction was, oh no, how am I going to handle this? He might start rambling and create an embarrassing situation. But then I caught myself in my presumption that he had nothing of importance to say. And I said to the audience, will you please sit down? My friend Bill would like to say a few words to you. Bill took the microphone. And he said with all the difficulties he has in speaking. Last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smeltzer with him. This time he wanted me to come with him to Washington, D.C., and I'm very glad to be here with you. Thank you very much. And that was it. Everyone stood up and gave him a warm applause. As he walked from the podium, Bill said, Henry, how'd you like my speech? Very much, I answered. Everyone was really happy with what you said. Bill was delighted. As the people gathered for refreshments, he felt freer than ever. He went from person to person, introducing himself, and I didn't see him for more than an hour. He was too busy getting to know everybody. The next morning at breakfast before we left, Bill walked from table to table with his cup of coffee in his hand, saying goodbye to all the people he met the night before. 
As we flew back to Toronto, Bill looked up from the world word puzzle book that he takes with him wherever he goes, and he said, Henry, did you like our trip? Oh, yes, I answered. It was a wonderful trip. I'm so glad you came with me. Bill looked at me attentively and said, and we did it together, didn't we? Henry writes, often I wonder how much of what I say will be remembered by anybody. But I knew that what had happened that night would not soon be forgotten. When we landed, I turned to Bill and I said, thanks for coming with me. It was a wonderful trip. And what we did, we did together in Jesus' name. And Henry ended that chapter in that book by saying, and I really meant it. Have we reached that level of love yet? I'm not sure I'm quite there, but I'm working on it. I hope you are too. Because it's to be the supreme value in our lives. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And love one another as Christ has loved you. And if you have not yet embraced the love of Jesus Christ for you, the day that you do, this will become a mark on your life as well. So the question comes to mind, how in the world do we come to the place that we can love each other like Jesus loves us. Well, we learned it on November the 11th, 2022, in the message. We love or grow in our capacity to love because Jesus first loved us. He first loved us. I love you because Jesus loves me. I hope you know Jesus loves you. I hope you've embraced that, that Jesus died for your sins. God raised him from the dead because he accepted the gift of Jesus or the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins and my sins. It makes no difference who you are, where you've been, what you've done. Sins can be forgiven because Jesus loves you. You don't have to clean yourself up to get loved by Jesus. He loved us while we were yet sinners. But because he loves us, we can love each other the same way he loves us. Back in November, when we were first John and studying this, Jesus loved us first, we sang Gaither's song, chorus to their song, I am loved. And that's what we're going to stand and sing one more time. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. <laughs>